This is the Sports and Entertainment Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration only on market scale. Building your brand is not around your product, so your team and your players, but you build your brand around truly this experience and this community. And we aren't in the baseball business. We are in the entertainment business, the experience business, and most importantly, the people business. Welcome into a brand new episode of the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. I'm your host today, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the show. We have a lot of great stuff lined up for you on this episode of the podcast. I'm really excited to get to bring it to you. And primarily, this week's episode tackles two topics that I don't know that I've ever really thought of before and two things that I don't think I understand very well. So I'm really excited to get to learn more as we do this week's episode of the show. Our title for this week's episode is From Blocking and Tackling to Blockchain. And our first feature of the day is going to be with noted sports author Rob Ruck, and it's titled Samoan Athletes May Be Most Vulnerable to Injury. Now, it sounds like an interesting topic, and it's something that he is actually very qualified to talk on. His latest book is titled Tropic of Football, The Long and Perilous Journey of Samoans to the NFL. And so we're going to talk about the dangers of the NFL and why there are increasing numbers of Samoans and Polynesians playing the sport as the number of people here in mainland America have really waned. Uh, Youth sports participation in the sport of football has really dropped off a little bit here in the United States. So he's going to take a look at that, and it's going to be a really interesting conversation with our correspondent. Shelby Skirhawk. Our second feature of the day is equally as interesting to me, and I'm going to be honest, it's something I don't understand very well at all, and it's about blockchain. And it's blockchain making inroads into the entertainment industry and really revolutionizing how payments work in entertainment. So specifically in the music industry, it can take months, if not over a year, to receive royalties for songwriting and things along those lines for musicians, for people in that field. And so blockchain is being used to help shorten that amount of time that it takes to get royalties and to eliminate the middlemen and the number of hands that money has to go through before it actually reaches its final destination. So that's a really interesting topic to me, and I'm curious to hear more about how blockchain is actually making that improvement. And again, I'm just being honest here, raising my hand. I do not understand the first thing about blockchain. So this is going to be a very informative interview for me as well. Like I said, it's going to be a really exciting episode of the show. I can't wait to get to bring it to you. So without further ado, let's get to that first feature of the day with author Rob Ruck talking about Samoans playing football. Coming up next here in the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. Rob Ruck is author of The Tropic of Football, The Long and Perilous Journey of Samoans to the NFL. In the introduction to the book, he writes, Football is at a crossroads, its future imperiled by the very physicality that derives its popularity. The game's grassroots, high school, and youth programs are withering. But players from the small South Pacific American territory of Samoa and their brothers in Hawaii, the mainland, are bucking that trend, quietly becoming the most disproportionately overrepresented culture in the sport. To talk about the historical context of the impact of contact sports, I sit down with Rob Ruck. He's a professor in the Department of History at the University of Pittsburgh. In Ruck's previous books, Tropic of Baseball, Sandlot Seasons, and Raceball, How the Major Leagues Colonized the Black and Latin Game, The professor explores the issues of race, socioeconomics, and sports. 
In his latest book, he explores the history of contact sports in the Samoan culture and population and why they may be most vulnerable. You know, I think um, it's pretty apparent that football is on the wane among youth in this country. The numbers for Pop Warner and community football and high school football have been declining for over a decade. And yet, while football is at this existential crossroads, more and more Polynesian kids and kids from lower socioeconomic classes are taking to the sport. Uh, better off parents don't want their kids to play football. But kids from communities where there are fewer options are still encouraging it. And I think um, with Polynesians, it's reached such a critical mass in the last decade that we're likely to see more and more Polynesian kids playing Division I football and in the NFL. So, Rob, how did you come to study the Samoan culture and its relation to football and, and such uh, contact sports? I've always been interested in athletic excellence and communities that produce disproportionate numbers of talented athletes at a particular sport. What I've come to calling a microculture of sporting excellence. And a number of years ago, I was finishing up a couple of projects and I also felt I needed to get out of my comfort zone, which was primarily looking at sport in African-American communities in the Caribbean. Being in Pittsburgh, I was quite aware of the emergence of Polynesians in football, especially Troy Palomalu, who I think exemplified a lot of that athletic brilliance. So without really knowing anything at all about American Samoa or Polynesian culture, I went there. And I think what I found was how much sport there reflected what Samoans called Fa'a Samoa, the way of Samoa, a culture that has roots that are some 3,000 years old and has retained an integrity that I think is missing in most parts of the world and most cultures. And I saw how that culture, which was a very disciplined, hierarchical, and physical culture, and realized how much that influenced the emergence of American football once it arrived among Samoans in the 1960s and earlier among Samoan communities in Hawaii and the mainland of the United States. And what strikes me is that that culture, more than any argument one can make about genetics, is behind their emergence, why they're so good, and yet what I think makes them so vulnerable to the downside of contact sport. That's interesting that the connection between the socioeconomics of uh, the players and the propensity to play, is that then, I mean, you say the op because they have fewer opportunities, is that because the chance of scholarship money and those sorts of things, just that potential for income earning still drives the lower socioeconomic kids to try to play. Absolutely. And you can see that American Samoa, which is a U.S. territory, which has perhaps 65,000 or 70,000 people. And it's a number of small islands whose economy is not particularly viable. The military is an option a lot of young men and women choose to get off the island. And sport is another, because if you can get that scholarship, whether it's a junior college or division one, 
that gives you the chance to bring honor upon your extended family, which is very important in Samoa. And also gives you the chance then to go back to the island and get a reasonably good job with the American government. So kids grow up thinking that football is not only fun and something that their elders applaud, but it's a way to get somewhere in life. In the book, you say that there are certain values in the Samoan culture that make Samoan players more vulnerable. Can you explain that? These boys grow up in a culture that is all about what they say is no faith, no fear. They're very stoic about pain. They're not very likely to admit it if their bell has been rung or if they're hurting. I mean, I guess it's kind of a macho thing. You just don't cop to pain. You don't show it. You don't admit to it. You don't use it as an excuse. Uh, you are a member of a team. And if that means sacrificing your body, they do so. When I was there in October, and I spoke to a couple of the Samoan uh, teams, well over 100 kids all together, and I asked how many had been injured playing football. Hardly a hand rose. When I asked how many had concussions, none. And yet we know many of them have had concussions, and many of them have incurred subconcussive damage, which when repetitive is even more harmful. To a degree, I think it's, it's this warrior culture which has persisted. Um, I mean, Samoans were a notoriously warlike people and quarrelsome with each other, as well as Tongans and, and the Europeans who made the scene. Um, they no longer take heads in battle, uh, but they are still living in a culture in which football games can end up in brawls in which kids fight each other because they're from different high schools. Um, where one of the last times I was at a game there, a couple of uh, penalties called on the field so upset some of the fans that they charged onto the field led by the reverend who had led the pregame invocation. Uh, and some of these mothers were bigger than their sons. And actually, that does bring up another risk factor for the Samoan population, both athletes and non-athletes alike. The United States acquired American Samoa as a territory at the beginning of the 1900s, but promptly forgot about them until World War II. During the war, it became a staging ground for the Allied counterattack, and there were more Marines and sailors and soldiers on the island than American Samoa. That changed the diet from something that had been based on subsistence agriculture, where people ate what they took from the ocean and harvested from their hillside plantations, to a wage labor economy that increasingly revolved around the U.S. military. When the U.S. shut down its naval base in American Samoa in 1951, the economy collapsed. And the diet has reflected what you see in any relatively poor community, which is you go for the most caloric bang for the buck. And since then, um, what had been a culture of people who ate extremely healthy, organic produce that they picked themselves and grew themselves 
or took fresh from the ocean, has turned into um, a pretty dreadful diet. And that caused uh, a huge increase in obesity, which caused a huge increase in diabetes. Uh, the one dialysis unit on the island uh, goes 17 hours a day. And they just don't have um, the resources from the federal government to spend as much on health care as residents of the 50 states have. Uh, I think there's greater awareness that uh, we've, we've got to do something about these problems. But, you know, as we've seen in the United States, when um, obesity takes hold, it is a very tough process to overturn that. And those who are most successful in getting their weights under control and having healthier diets and better lives tend to be from better off economic brackets where they can afford organic foods and health clubs and have the leisure time and aren't so stressed by daily life uh, that they're not eating as a way to deal with that. So, Rob, I mean, what does this mean for the game of football? I mean, we're talking about a kind of historical context of contact sports and a little bit of their cultural significance here in the U.S. and in other cultures like Samoa. But it seems to me that that type of violence, uh, sports violence, if you will, has been ingrained in the game for decades. So... Do you think that we can, as at least a U.S. audience, can we still enjoy a game, the same game, if we reduced the amount of violence in it? You know, I think football is a, it's a sport where the size of the players has grown so much. Uh, the strength of the players, the sense of invincibility they feel when they put on that helmet and those pads um, had just reached um, a crisis point. You know, as Lee Steinberg, who at one point was a prominent sport agent, put it, he said, it's one thing to play football, and when you're 40, not to be able to bend over and pick up your six-year-old child. It's another thing not to be able to remember her name. And I think that just in the last decade, our awareness of concussions and the amount of attention um, we spend on it, and particularly the understanding how vulnerable kids' brains are because they're not that fully formed, that's had an impact already. So, Rob, do you think the sport's going to change? I hope so. Uh, I do think there are reforms that could make the game safer. Uh, but it's changing the culture of how the game is played. And football has been a relatively conservative sport in that regard. But it has, over the last century, repeatedly changed its rules to make it a more appealing spectator venture. And it's been quite successful in that. I think if it wants to continue as uh, the most watched and 
most economically successful of American sports is going to have to do that. But I think that those changes are probably going to be more apparent at the lower levels first, where uh, they've changed how kids in Pop Warner play football. Where in the Ivy Leagues, they have eliminated full contact at practice during the season. Uh, The teams such as Dartmouth that use tackling dummies uh, to save wear and wear and tear on players' bodies. Um, essentially eliminating kickoffs. Um, there are things that can be done, but, or even, you know, what has been done by some programs where they've got sensors and helmets that monitor the cumulative uh, concussive damage that players incur. I don't know if this will be enough. And I do think football's at a crossroads. Uh, it's not going away anytime soon. It's an economic juggernaut that um, television depends on, that corporate sponsors and advertisers uh, enjoy a great deal. And so do American fans. But I think in 10 years, we might be looking at a very radically different game or a game which is no longer quite the pastime that it is. For Market Scale Sports and Entertainment, I'm Shelby Skirhoff. Thank you to Shelby Skirhawk and to Rob Ruck for that look into Samoan athletes and the sport of football. Really, really uh, interesting look into that topic there. Coming up next is going to be the topic that I know nothing about, and we're going to go from blocking and tackling into blockchain and talk about blockchain making inroads into entertainment and really improving the way that people get paid in entertainment. So we're going to look specifically at the music and movie industry with Dr. Luciano Pesky, the CEO of Imperitas, and it's going to be a fascinating look just at what blockchain can do for that industry, and I, I, I can't wait to see it. And we're going to scratch our, uh, our entertainment industry side of this podcast. We do a lot of sports not enough entertainment. So we're going to look more over at the entertainment side of things coming up next here on the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. All right, so for this feature on the Sports and Entertainment Podcast, we are rejoined by one of my favorite collaborators, Mr. Luciano Pesci. Luciano, how are you doing today? Good. It's nice to be back. Yeah, always good to have you on. You know, when... I first started doing podcasts with Market Scale. You were one of my first interviews. Um, so you hold a special place in my podcast heart. Well, I enjoy listening to your podcast and I enjoy being on it as well. <laughs> so for the general concept of this podcast, we are going to be exploring the use, the effectiveness, and the power of blockchain in the entertainment industry. So that's going to include music and movies. Uh, so, you know, I think when you think of blockchain, often you're thinking crypto, you're thinking, all right, this is going to help with uh, data management and security, and often those are paramount points within the entertainment industry. I mean, entertainers need to get paid. They need to have their content that they created secured, um, and it's just, I don't think part of the main 
conversation around blockchain to correlate the two industries. Why do you think that is, even though, as we're going to dissect here in a second, you know, we are seeing a lot of great applications for blockchain in the industry? Yeah, there, the applications can be grouped into a couple buckets, if you want to think about it that way. So the one that you just hit on is payments. How can payments happen over the blockchain so that it's uh, more secure, that you remove middlemen, intermediaries? Right now, if you're an artist and you are trying to get paid on your publishing rights, so the fact that people are using it at live events or playing it on the radio or putting it in movies, that process, it can take years to get paid. And it may exchange hands multiple times. And this is an industry that has a lot of uh, trust issues related to the management of money. And so one thing that has motivated the artists themselves is, okay, if we have the rights to this material, this art, how can we best get paid? And so there's one group of solutions using blockchain that are doing that. Another, another is how to control the content itself. So the distribution of the content, how could you potentially share music or movies or games through a distributed decentralized network where consensus makes sure that things aren't getting hacked, things aren't getting arbitrarily changed, no one individual can affect it. And so that's also very interesting for, for different artists. Uh, I think you see a lot of this in art. There's a great company called snark.art that is pioneering this right now. They're trying to make a collaborative space where artists would create things that then live on the blockchain and are distributed and paid for through that kind of mechanism. And then the third and final bucket that these kind of blockchain solutions are providing to the media and entertainment industry is when it comes to the actual digital rights of the man digital rights management. Right. So DRM, how do you ensure that people are not pirating? Right. The cost of pirating is staggering. It's enormous. And in the United States, the RIAA, so the Recording Industry Association of America and the Motion Picture, Motion Picture Association of America collectively spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year to enforce those property rights. So is there a blockchain solution to solve that problem? And Sony actually has a patent right now on that. So they've already been awarded it. And they're looking for ways in which to use the blockchain for digital media management, digital rights management. Hmm. So obviously we're seeing varied uses of blockchain in the industry. But why do you feel like it's not often at the forefront of the blockchain conversation? I mean, I just know whenever we're seeing blockchain in the news, whenever we're seeing blockchain in the general I, I don't know, tech conversation world, we don't really see the entertainment industry at the forefront of, hey, we're seeing a lot of great uses here. Do you think there's a reason for that? I think the reality might not match the perception. So in reality, these companies are some of the furthest along when it comes to blockchain projects. Almost all blockchain projects right now are in the exploratory phase. So 2017 was the year of the cryptos. And I actually thought this might be where your comment was going that the public discourse is dominated by Bitcoin. And that's the only association that the public often has with blockchain. And that has actually worked detrimentally to the development of the underlying technology of blockchain. Because in 2017, you saw a lot of booms and busts when it came to promises for the next great product. And it was all tokenized. Well, they were using a great tool, but they were using it in the wrong way. In the background, companies like Sony and Microsoft 
and large video game providers, Kodak is out there doing blockchain-based projects. They just aren't talking about it very much. And so they've actually moved, in some cases, past exploratory, and they have demonstrated proof of concept. So in Kodak's case, they have licensed their name to a group that wanted to figure out if they could use machine learning, public data, to enforce intellectual property rights. So it's the image rights management platform. Kodak One is the project. Kodak's openly saying, we're doing this with blockchain right now because we feel like we embarrassed ourselves and missed the digital revolution of photo. Remember, they were the big player in all things picture, and it faded out very quickly. They were replaced by other companies who saw it as a totally different kind of market. So Kodak is looking at blockchain and saying, this is something we're not going to miss out on. And so they used this machine learning algorithm to identify things through Google searches and other public domain that was in violation of some sort of intellectual property right, image-based. I think it's all exclusively image-based. And then they sent notification to the person who was doing this, and they said, you need to pay us. And they raised a million dollars in three months doing this. Why isn't that at the front of the public discourse? It's because these companies themselves are not promoting this. And I think it's for two reasons. One, they don't want to be associated with the crypto. But then the second reason is it's a competitive advantage. Kodak doesn't necessarily want to broadcast to the world that they're doing this because someone else can just from basically understanding the idea to a large degree replicate it. Which I guess goes to show that blockchain usage in the entertainment industry, though powerful, isn't being used by every big player still. You know, it's still kind of that emerging tech. People aren't sure how it fits in. So even though we are seeing some some big strides, it's not necessarily ubiquitous yet, which is exciting um, because that means there's still a lot of room to grow and to find new applications. So let's focus this in on one industry to start. Let's start with the music industry specifically. So I know you mentioned a couple things, but I think the biggest application for blockchain in the music industry is definitely funds slash royalties, which has been a point of contention for a long time. I mean, the whole creation of Tidal, the streaming service, was put in place because artists were upset that Apple Music and Spotify were paying them pennies on pennies, and Tidal was put in place for solidarity among artists. And I feel like blockchain in the music industry can accomplish a very similar thing, used you know, for the artists, for the performers themselves, and the content creators. Is that what you're seeing as well? Yeah, that's definitely where there are some leading startups that are pushing the frontier of getting payments faster, more securely, without all those intermediaries. But you have to understand that the music industry is one that has embraced blockchain a little bit earlier than some of the others. And you mentioned Tidal, but Tidal is not a, uh, as far as I know, it is not a blockchain-based solution. But it right. still solves the same, I, the same problem, which is if I'm the artist, how do I get paid and cut all the unnecessary people out between me and the end consumer? Right. And that is revolutionary. So there, is, there are a few examples in the history of the U.S. economy of a more centralized, monopoly-controlled industry than the music industry. Hmm. At one point, it was, it was literally controlled by organized crime. It was so centralized, and it was centralized in a couple of ways. It was very hard to record. It was very expensive to have a recording studio. Right. So they controlled the creation of the music. It was very hard to distribute it. You had to have the network. There's no internet back then. 
Right. So you had to distribute it all across the country and they controlled that. And then you had to process all the money, receive all the payments, deal with all the, mo- all the contracts, and they had a monopoly on that. And artists, in some cases, were literally signing their lives away, signing away all those intellectual property rights. And so in the late 90s, early 2000s, the music industry just got double punched by the rise of cheap ways to record music and the rise of digital connectivity that allowed you to share it And you had the Napster generation and the piracy, which leads to these property right issues. And they had no choice but to adapt. And they moved from a very centralized system to one that's now in some ways too broken apart because it's not effectively coordinating. And so what blockchain promises to do, and a good example of this is Mycelia. I think I'm saying that right. M-Y-C-E-L-I-A. So this is Emojin Heap's startup. So she's a Grammy-winning British singer. Uh, in 2015, so this is a few years ago, this is well before the crypto boom and bust, she put out the song Tiny Human, and she did it on Ethereum for about 60 cents. It was a very successful example of how an artist could distribute directly to the market using blockchain, that first example that I talked about. But the reason that she was doing it is because that 60 cents gets to her a lot faster and few, through fewer hands than the traditional approach of even that new revolutionized version of the music industry. So there's a continued progress that, to their credit, the music industry has seen this. And I think in some ways it's also because the nature of their digital media is much smaller than movies or video games. So it's easier to put a song out on Ethereum than it is to put an entire movie. Right, right. Well, and it's also just the idea that you know, artists are stepping away from record labels. Um, you know, you don't have to be signed to make it. And there are plenty of artists that showcase that. I mean, you just look at Chance the Rapper, one of the biggest pop slash hip hop artists out today. And he's not technically signed to any label. Um, and a lot of that is because there are sort of these independent music release services you can pay for that will basically cut out that middleman you lose the resources but you get the ability to share the content out yourself now those services you're obviously still paying for them and they still take a cut of the royalties so you're saying now if artists distributed their music on ethereum or on some other blockchain then they could potentially see more money just a higher percentage oh absolutely yeah there are so many hands that that money transfers from within the music industry so then why do you think more artists aren't latching onto it? Do you think it's because they just don't have any idea that it's a possibility? Um, or do you think that the, I don't know, I, I don't think the higher-ups in the music industry really have as much power to say and do what artists, or what, you know, to say what artists can and can't do. But do you think that there is, you know, maybe an avoidance of advertising that, hey, artists can use blockchain tech to get, way more money out of their content because, well, these distributing sites or these record labels, they want to cut too. I think there have been a few examples in the past where there's been significant media changes that the entire music industry, artists and labels did not know how to deal with. So the internet is a good example. Most of the property rights and the contracts were written about physical distribution of physical things. How does that affect, how does that stay in effect in a strictly digital world. So they had to cope with that sudden change. And not everybody was on board. People, Some people fought it. Some people saw it as the future. 
Before that, it was CDs. Before that, it was different tape formats. There have been these, and blockchain, by the way, is potentially a media distribution just like tapes and CDs. That's one way you could use it. The other is you could just use it for getting paid faster. It makes sense to have both of those things on the blockchain where you distribute the music, know that the distribution has happened, and then get paid also through the same kind of mechanism. And this is just the next inevitable frontier for the music industry. And there are, to their credit, a lot of really creative type people who are still technically savvy. And they're the ones like uh, Emojin who do this very early on. And, you know, really my only point of concern for bringing blockchain to the entertainment industry, whether that's music or film, is the quality of the content itself. Um, You know, I know there are certain standards for getting your music published, getting your film produced and backed. And I think part of the conversation with opening the doors to more artists and making things more accessible is there's a larger flood of uh, amateur content for better or for worse. And um, I guess with blockchain now in the mix, I guess I'm thinking, does that mean that the quality of the content that you're purchasing or that is being uploaded or that blockchain is assisting in creating, is that content going to be lower quality? Some of it definitely will be. Because when you lower the, this is the lesson of the music industry, the technology lowered the cost to enter the market. You could be, wasn't Justin Bieber found from YouTube? I think he was found on yeah. YouTube. Yeah. And I mean, so was Halsey. Uh, Halsey, yeah. she's a yeah. big that, pop star now. Not, she, she was found off a, a cover song, you know? That is not at all how stars were born in the past. Right. Right. And right. I think that this gets to a fundamental ideology behind blockchain. Is it better to have a centralized, mob-controlled monopoly who can just tell from listening to something that that's a hit or not? And they should be the only ones who can say that the cost of recording, because it's so high, has to go to this, this project and not another. And the distribution is so limited that the space on the shelf has to go to this individual. That old centralized mentality is one way of understanding the world. The purpose of blockchain, ultimately is to say, no, a decentralized version is, a, is not only more secure, more equitable, more democratic, more, um, more individually empowering, but it also results in better outcomes. We, the public, will decide what is or is not a star. Yeah. Just put the content out there and we can sort through it. There's a billion hours a day of YouTube that is watched. That is not all quality, what we would call quality content. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. I know most of the stuff I'm watching is is purposefully pretty low quality. Which, br- But if it adds value to your life, exactly. which it does because you keep coming back, then Google can monetize it by putting in advertisements. And those advertisements, by the way, could be a lot more hyper-targeted if Google knew all of your preferences because you were giving the access to them willfully through a blockchain transaction, a smart contract. And they could show you ads that are pertinent to you and you'd never see anything that you don't have to. Or you can use, there's other solutions. There's a decentralized version of YouTube called DTube. And it's tied to, the, uh, to an open internet project, which is around the digital rights management component of blockchain. 
Well, Luciano, I always appreciate your insight, and especially when we're talking about the entertainment industry, I'm particularly intrigued. I'm a music producer myself, and uh, I, you know I love film, and the industry itself is it's a beautiful thing because those doors do open and they do encourage amateur content creation, which hopefully then becomes professional content creation. Um, so any sort of tech that is going to assist in that or shake things up, I'm always going to keep my ear to the ground looking for that. And it's cool to see that blockchain might have that effect. So Luciano, thank you again for joining us on the podcast. Always enjoy chatting with you. I'm looking forward to the next time. Thanks again to Daniel Litwin for conducting that interview and to Luciano Pesci for joining us on the Sports and Entertainment Podcast this week. You guys may have thought we were going to get out of here without talking about the Super Bowl, but you were sorely mistaken. I'm going to have a conversation with our chief digital editor here at MarketScale, Jeff Short. You will shortly hear that I give him a nickname when we talk in our interviews, but that's just kind of what I do. Every time uh, Jeff joins the podcast, he gets a new nickname. So Jeff Short joins me on the podcast just to discuss all of the different areas around the Super Bowl that we can talk about from a B2B perspective. So everything from stadium security to the logistics for getting the halftime show rolling and out onto the field to, you know, what is the economic impact for the city of Atlanta that is hosting the Super Bowl and just Super Bowl host cities in general? Is it a positive economic impact? Jeff and I are going to discuss all of those different uh, areas of the Super Bowl and, and all of the different angles that you can talk about the Super Bowl from a B2B perspective coming up next year on the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. Joining me now in the Market Scale studio is Jeff, the franchise QB short. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, I've been called the franchise QB since about uh, freshman football, so it feels good that uh, you know that name stuck with me. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You remember the glory days? <laughs> of course. Co- coach would have put you in. They would have won state, but <laughs> I'd be playing this weekend. I think. <laughs> but instead, we're talking about the Super Bowl rather than playing in it. And there are a lot of different aspects that go on to making the Super Bowl the gigantic production that it is. And one of them really is the halftime show and all of the different logistics that go into that for that production to come off this year's Maroon 5 and probably some special guests, something along those lines. But tell me more about what we know and what we've learned about uh, what a production it is and the different moving parts that have to go into putting on a production like that. Well, obviously it's a humongous uh, stage and event for the singer and the TV broadcasts, the whole game. I mean, a lot of Super Bowls are in some ways remembered for the halftime performances, right? So you need to get it right. And we've seen, obviously, uh, Justin Timberlake can tell you that when it goes wrong, it kind of sticks with you as well. Halftime is extended a couple minutes on either side. So that is a little bit of a cushion for the people, the stage crew and all of that, the groundskeepers uh, to set this up. But they really only have about six or seven minutes to put it up and six or seven minutes to take it down. And you're wheeling out a massive stage. Um, obviously, a lot of the audio checks have to be done ahead of time, and you're syncing that up with the building itself. But you're also allowing people onto the field in a lot of situations. I don't know this year if there's going to be crowd on the field for it, but I would assume so. It's sort of become the norm. So you're managing people. You're obviously having the technical uh, situation and it's just a time crunch so it's pretty amazing when you do see how they pull it off and I'm looking forward to uh, this year's show just to see what new stunts they pull and then when you talk about having an event of this stature on this type of stage with the people that are going to be there you also have to think about security which is another big aspect of the Super Bowl how do they secure such a gigantic event at a stadium like Mercedes-Benz Stadium there in Atlanta you're doing sweeps of the stadium of course and you're making sure that 
the security guards at the actual ticket turnstiles know what they're doing, of mm -hmm. course. But you have to be working in conjunction with the city. I mean, the public transportation, public squares, things like that have to be really locked down because this is, you know, it's a target. At the end of the day, it's one of the biggest events in the sporting world, and it's a major target. So you have to really be ready for everything. So uh, it's pretty much unlike any other event security-wise that we have in North American sports every year. And you're mentioning the city quite a bit, and I think that's another aspect to bring into it when you consider the Super Bowl is – is this still a profitable venture for a city? Should you be bidding for Super Bowls? That's been a big topic of conversation for the Olympics over the last few years. You're going to build all of these facilities and that sort of thing to only see them be used once. Mm -hmm. Is it still a good idea for cities to try to host the Super Bowl? And uh, what what is that process like? And what's the conversation surrounding that question? The fact that the NFL doesn't have to build these massive stadiums is obviously saving them a lot of money. But mm -hmm. there are definitely a lot more costs that go into hosting a Super Bowl than people think. So to even get the bid, the stadium is probably not um, having a uh, rent fee that they're issuing to the NFL. So they're giving the stadium away for free. Um, you also still are building you know, things outside the stadium, whether it's staging or a fan zone, things like right, that. Right. So you're spending money on that. You're spending on money on bringing all these you know, celebrities and performers to the event. There's definitely a lot of costs associated with hosting. Um, and the money, does it really trickle down to the hotels and restaurants you know, with this influx of people? Surely some, but is it enough to really you know, sell out your town for that weekend? So I think Atlanta will do a good job. It's a good event in town, so I think they will see uh, millions pouring into their economy. Absolutely. Well, for articles on all three of those topics that we just touched on, whether it's halftime show, security, or the economic benefit of hosting the Super Bowl, you can go to marketscale.com and we have those articles there. You can read more about those and actually uh, learn a little bit more about each of those specific topics as it relates to the B2B angles on the Super Bowl. Jeff, the franchise quarterback, thank you for joining me today. That is all we have time for in this week's episode of the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. Just a heads up, next week I will be reporting live from ISE in Amsterdam. That is a pro-AV show. Uh, but we know that Pro-AV really intersects a lot with the sports world, whether it's gigantic screens inside stadiums, digital signage, things along those lines, maybe VR and AR and things, new ways to watch and consume sports uh, that are coming down the pipeline. So there's going to be some overlap between what we see at ISE in Amsterdam. That's Integrated Systems Europe, by the way. It's one of the biggest Pro-AV shows in the world. And what we see there in Amsterdam and then what is happening in the world of sports when it comes to consuming sports uh, on lots of different levels. So I will be reporting live from Amsterdam all next week so there will be some sports and entertainment overlap there so make sure to check out our Pro AV page to keep up with all of our ISE content as well it's going to be a really really exciting time and if you know me you know I'm going to try to find a way to get over to a soccer stadium or something along those lines while we're there so uh, make sure to stay tuned for that as well we'll be back soon with another episode of the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast but until then I've been your host today Tyler Kern thank you for listening